Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. There's been a big advance recently in quantum computers. But what are they? When will you get one of them? What are they even good for? We tackle one of the world's most counterintuitive and hyped bits of technology. And Hasenkeif in southeastern Turkey is one of the longest continuously inhabited places on Earth. Not for long, though. Residents have until tomorrow to evacuate before a new hydroelectric dam floods the valley and submerges 12,000 years of human history. But first... Trade discussions between America and China resume this week. The 13th round of negotiations will take place in Washington, with President Donald Trump talking up his country's position. I have a lot of options on China, but if they don't do what we want, we have tremendous, uh, tremendous power. Last week, the Trump administration won a battle in a separate trade war with the European Union. The World Trade Organization gave America the go-ahead to impose tariffs on more than $7 billion worth of imports, including aircraft, but also European favorites, including Italian Parmesan, Spanish olives, and Scottish single malt whiskey. The Trump administration seems unwilling to row back on any of its demands, so a quick end to either dispute looks unlikely. President Donald Trump is currently fighting his trade wars on two main fronts. Samaya Keynes is our trade and globalization editor and co-host of the podcast Trade Talks. The first is with China and the second is with the European Union. There were a few others that have quietened down recently. There was a mini deal announced with Japan, Mexico and Canada, given that they've agreed this deal with the US, they are feeling more more comfortable than they they were last year. And so it's really the EU and, and China that are now feeling the heat. Well, let's take those two in turn. How are things coming along between America and China? So they're coming along slowly, but there are some positive signs. On October the 10th, Liu He, the Chinese head of negotiations, is going to arrive in Washington, D.C., and that's going to start two days of talks. And the hope there is that they will try to to pick up the talks from where they broke down in spring. There was a lot of chatter in the spring about how they were perhaps almost at a deal, there was going to be some kind of big announcement. And then at the last minute, everything fell apart. So now they're trying to pick up the pieces. The fact that the negotiators are speaking in person is is a really good sign. There is quite a lot at stake, though. On October 15th, there is going to be a new wave of tariff increases. There's also 
a couple of other things swilling around in the conversation. One is that the, the Trump administration is reportedly discussing proposals to bar Chinese companies from listing in the US stock market, which would be a big deal. But also there's this question of whether Donald Trump brought up investigations of, of Joe Biden in his conversations with Xi. So there's there's a lot of politics now interacting with these with these talks. I mean, I recall the sort of repeated story on the the earlier sets of talks and how it was just a matter of, you know, crossing the T's and dotting the I's and then and then it all fell apart. Do you do you think this week will will bring them back to that stage? Could possibly result in a deal? I don't think we're going to get a big breakthrough after this agreement. They may announce something small, a sign of, of good faith perhaps, but the differences were fairly big when those talks broke down. And so I think we should we should manage expectations for what, what we'll get. You mentioned the other front of the trade war with the, the European Union. What's going on there? Yeah, this hit the headlines last week when a very, very old dispute at the World Trade Organization reached its, its final stage. And essentially, the World Trade Organization authorized the Trump administration to put tariffs on various European products. So if you are an American and you enjoy eating Italian parmesan or or scotch whiskey, then you can expect perhaps those, those products to get a little bit more expensive. They're going to be hit by a 25% tariff. This dispute was over subsidies for aircraft. The US is, is annoyed that the EU has not withdrawn subsidies for Airbus, its, its big aircraft manufacturer. And so The point of this tariff list was that the US claims that it's trying to put pressure on the EU to withdraw its subsidies. And that's why it's hitting these products that these governments take pride in. That's supposed to be essentially putting pressure on those groups, those powerful groups within Europe that representing those products and those industries. It's supposed to be putting pressure on them to in turn pressure the EU to withdraw the subsidies. Now, there's another big, big product that's going to be hit as part of, of this tariff list, and that's actually big aircraft. So they're putting a 10% tariff on imported planes. And there, that's sort of trying to get closer to the source of the problem to try and hit Airbus. Although the American airlines that are the ones that are actually buying the aircraft are quite upset. But this isn't just a one-way fight, though, is it? Yes, exactly. There is a parallel dispute going on essentially a few months behind this one, where the Europeans are accusing the Americans of offering subsidies to Boeing. And so in a few months time, it's very likely that the World Trade Organization will authorize the EU to hit the US. When I say that this is part of a trade war, this is really not part of Donald Trump's other assortment of trade wars, where it's essentially him unilaterally going after these various countries. This is an example of a very, very long running fight that has been essentially sanctioned by the global rules-based trading system. This is the judges in the system saying, yep, but you've broken the rules and you're allowed to apply tariffs. That's qualitatively very different from Donald Trump waking up one morning and deciding, I want to put tariffs on Mexico or, or China. So you say that they're, they're sort of thematically very separate. I mean, is there one of them that's more sort of important or more dire than the other? Yeah, if you if you look at the numbers, then this this spat with the EU is just very small. The the retaliation that's been authorized is over seven point five billion dollars worth of EU exports to the US. 
The China-US trade war currently covers hundreds of billions of dollars. Do you think that, that either of them kind of fit into a, a broader administration strategy on the part of the, of the Americans, even if they are kind of of a different origin? I think very, very broadly, if you wanted to try and fit all of this together, the fact that the US seems so gung-ho about applying these tariffs on the EU, whereas perhaps a previous administration might have thought a bit harder about doing that, I think you can fit that together with the US-China aggression into a broader strategy of, of essentially the US saying no more Mr. Nice Guy, right? The idea that they're going to be tougher than their predecessors, they're going to be happier about applying pressure, applying tariffs, even if it hurts America. And that, they hope, will get the results that they want. You say that this is the plan, even if it hurts America, um, but then being able to claim various wins. I mean, at what point do those two lines cross where the hurting America kind of takes away from the evident wins? I think for a while, people were predicting that Donald Trump would perhaps step back from the trade war once he he saw that it was having a negative effect on the US economy. They said that he really cared about the stock market. And if you started to see the stock market tank, then he would hold back. I'm not sure how confident I am in that claim anymore, given that we, we've seen you know, some sogginess in the US economy and, and, and the president has essentially been blaming the Federal Reserve, not his own trade policies. And then separately, there was a comment he made about how, you know, even if there was pain, then he would have to, to go through with his trade war with, with China. So if we were under a different presidency, one might expect the, the pain to feed through into policy decisions a bit more closely. I think under President Donald Trump, he's less responsive uh, to those cries of pain. And so we should expect more tariffs, more fronts in the trade war to come. I don't expect these tariffs to go away anytime soon. Tamea, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Maybe you've heard of something called quantum computing. And maybe you've heard that recently the field made its biggest advance in nearly 40 years, an accomplishment called quantum supremacy. Quantum computing isn't like the number crunching carried out by whatever device you're listening to this on now. It exploits some of the counterintuitive rules of quantum mechanics, a bit of physics that suggests particles can be in two places or states at once, or connected across vast distances. For some problems, some really thorny ones, quantum computers should be far faster than standard classical computers. Quantum supremacy is that threshold, a quantum machine for the first time crunching through a calculation far faster than any existing supercomputer. Now, let's be clear, the winning machine, which was made by Google, doesn't do anything particularly useful, yet. 
and quantum computing isn't going to replace the standard kind. But this is still really exciting news. I used to be a physicist, so it's a topic close to my own heart. So, when the announcement came, our technology editor, Tim Cross, and I reported on it together for The Economist. And now, I've brought him into the studio and set him a difficult task. All right, here's the challenge. 30 seconds, what's quantum computing? Basically, a quantum computer is a computer that instead of using ordinary bits, which are one and zero, like the ones you get in a classical computer, it uses qubits, which can be in this weird quantum superposition. They can be sort of partly one and partly zero at the same time. You basically, you make a whole bunch of these things, you stick them on a chip, you use another quantum process called entanglement to kind of mix them all together such that, you know, what you do to one affects them all. Provided you can feed it the right sort of algorithm, this lets you effectively crunch through a bunch of mathematical problems or some mathematical problems, not all mathematical problems, just some, way, way faster than any classical computer possibly could. Okay, but let's, let's talk about that. What, what kinds of problems? Well, so this is one of the big questions, and the answer is, at the moment, nobody is exactly sure. So we have a few quantum algorithms for a few problems. It's an open question whether there are more out there. But the one that's maybe drawn the most attention, at least from governments and some businesses, is this thing called Shor's algorithm. If I give you a huge number and say, this number is what you get when you multiply two big prime numbers together, tell me what those prime numbers are. We know of no efficient way to get a classical computer to do this, right? If the number's big enough, it'll take hundreds, thousands, millions of years, whatever. On a quantum computer, ever since 1994, and some work done by a guy called Peter Shor, we know how to do this way more efficiently. And that sounds incredibly esoteric until you realize that that particular piece of maths and the fact that it's very, very easy to multiply two primes to get a big number and almost impossibly hard to start with a big number and go back to the two primes, that is the basis of a whole load of the encryption that protects like financial details, corporate secrets, your own browsing sessions. So one of the worries is that, hey, when somebody builds a quantum computer of sufficient size and sufficient power, a lot of the encryption we rely on today kind of just evaporates. Yeah, well, sufficient size and sufficient power, there's, there's a lot going on there, right? What we see so far are relatively primitive machines, and the demonstration that Google has done is, is again, it's only like a 50-qubit machine. I guess the important thing is to, to pick out what sort of stuff we'll get to between now and the future when these things are millions and millions of qubits big. You could say, in a way, this is the field Sputnik moment, right? Because Sputnik, all it was was a little silver ball that went around the Earth going beep, beep, beep. It didn't actually do anything useful. But it proved that the technology worked, that you could get a satellite into orbit, and it attracted the world's attention. And everyone said, oh my gosh, this supercharged the space race. And then the other analogy, which some of the people we interviewed brought up, was with the very early days of computing itself. So uh, the ENIAC, which is one of the contenders for the title of sort of first, quotes modern computer. And it was this huge room-sized thing, and it was made out of these big glass vacuum tubes that got really hot and made a big, loud humming noise, and they went wrong all the time. And it had sort of a few thousand. And people said, well, quantum computing is kind of at that stage now. So you can build primitive machines, but if you want to really scale them up, if you want to build the equivalent of a modern you know, desktop or smartphone or something, you have a huge amount of engineering work to do. These days, we don't use vacuum tubes anymore. We use transistors and we you know, can make them incredibly small. And there were decades and decades of really tricky engineering that had to go into making that a reality. We're sort of somewhere between the Sputnik and ENIAC stage right now. So I suppose, though, looking at this, what Google has done is design a machine, design an algorithm, pick a problem just to make this happen. And yet all of this research has been going on and it hasn't been moved ahead by this supremacy demonstration. The field is as, as far ahead or, or behind as it was before this. I'm not, I'm not sure this is such a watershed moment, except as it draws attention to the field. Yeah, except I think that that is 
that is still a big thing to do. There were some people out there who said, okay, you could build one of these things in theory, you'll never do it in practice. And everyone calls it quantum supremacy, this, this demonstration of quantum supremacy. Having achieved that proves that actually you can build these things and you can build them powerful enough to solve a problem. Okay, a sort of toy, slightly contrived problem, but still a problem faster than any existing machine could. One of the good things about these sort of big headline quote breakthroughs is it proves that the field fundamentally works. You know, it seems to behave as we expect it to behave. And, you know, if you're looking for a good return on your research money, this is probably quite a good place to put it. Well, then let's take a look at where this is likely to head. I am not going to have ever a quantum computer on my desk. Not without a huge string of breakthroughs, because, I mean, these things at the moment, they they live in fridges, basically. You have to cool them, and like really serious fridges, you have to cool them to virtually absolute zero. They're incredibly sort of sensitive and delicate beasts, and if the day ever comes where we have big, powerful ones, they will almost certainly live in data centers somewhere in the cloud, and you'll just make use of them as you need them. You'll rent them effectively from the companies that own them. But in the meantime, there's going to be a lot of hype about this, because there's a lot of hype that comes with anything where you inject the word quantum. Yeah, and it's really hard to get the balance right because, you know, on the one hand, this will be incredibly useful. So at the moment, we can't simulate chemistry because chemistry is a quantum mechanical process and our computers just can't hack it. They, they choke up. One of the great things a quantum computer can do is simulate this and any kind of chemistry. So, you know, if you want to design a better catalyst, designing drugs or new kinds of materials for cars or aeroplanes or just about anything you can think of, you know, the ability to actually simulate real chemistry and not just a rough cartoon of chemistry, which is what we can do at the moment, that's going to be hugely significant, but it won't be hugely significant in a kind of consumer way. All the benefits will be indirect. Everything that is made of matter of stuff in the world will presumably get slightly better because we are more able to understand how it behaves. You aren't ever going to see, I wouldn't have thought, a sort of giant consumer-facing quantum computing company. It's never going to be an apple of quantum computers. It's one of those technologies that I guess is, is just like computers themselves. It's just generally useful for all kinds of things. And, you know, it's hard to sit here and say it will be useful for this and this, but not that and that, because it's, it's kind of universal. But that said, the engineers have a tremendous amount left to do. So, I mean, in a, in a, in a quantum sense, I guess we're in a superposition of maybe they can, maybe they can't. It is a law that no radio broadcast about quantum anything can be complete without a bad quantum joke. I apologize. Tim, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Jason. On the banks of the Tigris River in southeastern Turkey is Hasankeyf. The small town is one of the longest continuously inhabited places on Earth. It's cradled one civilization after another for 12,000 years. Hasankeyf is an ancient town in Turkey's southeast. Piotr Zalewski is our Turkey correspondent, based in Istanbul. And it's a town that features the ruins of a medieval bridge, cliffs riddled with thousands of Neolithic caves, a Roman citadel, Byzantine churches and the Ubid Mosque and ancient graveyards. But today it is at risk. How do you mean? Well, it risks being submerged. There's a hydroelectric dam being built downstream on the Tigris River. And that dam, once it opens, will lead to the flooding or the formation of a reservoir that'll stretch for about 130, 140 kilometers and that will bury Hassan Cave and nearby villages under up to 30 meters of water. 80% of the town will be submerged. And what about the modern residents of Hassan Cave? So, so Hassan Cave is a town of about 3,000 people, but the creation of the reservoir 
numbers expected to displace up to 100,000 people. This is a pressing issue because, at least in Hassan Cave, residents have been given until October 8th to evacuate the town. And so what's going to happen to those 100,000 locals who are being displaced? Well, it's not entirely clear. What is clear is the fate of the 3,000 residents of Hassan Cave, and they are being relocated to a town that is being built on the opposite bank of the river, and it is a town of uniform houses. Now, a long-term concern is for the economy of the region, because at least in Hassan Cave, most of the residents live off tourism and they live off animal husbandry, and the dam will threaten both. And and what about Hassan Cave as a, as a sort of historical site? Is, is all of that just going to go underwater too? Other than the citadel, all of Hassan Cave will be flooded, and the authorities have taken some precautions. They have, in what was a massive logistical operation, they have moved seven or eight of the key artifacts from Hassan Cave, from the old ancient town, uh, including a minaret and an ancient tomb and a bathhouse, to the newly built settlement. But, you know, where in the past these artifacts had ancient Neolithic caves as, as neighbors and were situated in almost this fairyland kind of landscape. Today, they're surrounded by you know, Lego houses and a mountain slope that has been ravaged by dynamite. Uh, so it doesn't make for too pretty a site. So why is, this, why is the river being dammed? So the expectation is that the hydroelectric dam will contribute... Uh, some $400 million per year to the economy and generate as much as 4% of Turkey's electricity production. And has there been much opposition to this dam? You know, this project has uh, generated a lot of opposition, both domestic and foreign. About a decade ago, three European banks, which were initially involved in the project, withdrew citing environmental and cultural heritage concerns. Iraq, Turkey's southern neighbor, has opposed the project for fear that the dam will limit the the supply of water downstream. And environmentalists, both in Turkey and in Europe, have been worried that this is going to wipe out one of Turkey's most precious, uh, most ancient uh, cultural heritage sites. Well, well, exactly. Is there no way of trying to save it on the ground that it is so valuable? Unfortunately, it doesn't seem like it. There was some hope that Hassan Cave could be built a UNESCO World Heritage Site, which would give the government some pause for thought. Unfortunately, according to UNESCO's own rules, the only institution that can apply for World Heritage status for any site on its territory is the national government. And obviously, that is not going to happen. In other words, there is hardly any hope for Hassan case. Piotr, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 